If you are in the 81% of aspiring authors out there, stop aspiring and start writing with Readsy. Readsy allows indie authors to find and work with the best publishing professionals, from developmental editors to book cover designers to publicists. Just sign up for an author profile, browse the extensive marketplace of professionals, find the best fit for your project, and set a collaboration in motion. And with built-in contracts, protection, and mediation from Readsy, finding qualified freelancers, editors, designers, and marketers as a self-published author just got a lot easier. Go to readsy.com today to sign up and set your first collaboration in motion. That's R-E-E-D-S-Y dot com. Then I had my daughter and I was reading stories to her from fairy tales and nursery rhymes. I don't really understand how I do it. Why couldn't she just be the main character in my book? That sort of story is inspirational to a lot of wannabe writers out there who feel they have a book in them but are living a totally different life at the moment. It worked out that I was constantly translating these ideas in my head, if you, if you catch my meaning. Taking a book the whole nine yards, from an idea in your head to words on a page, from a scribble on a napkin to a listing on Amazon, that's easier said than done. But it's also easier than you'd think. I'm your host, Casimir M. Stone, and this is Readsy's Bestseller, the podcast demystifying the process of self-publishing a book for aspiring novelists everywhere, one episode at a time. This is Addendum 8, Adapting to Change. When I say Snow White, who do you picture? Or perhaps a better question to ask would be, which one? Is it Jennifer Goodwin's fairy tale staple turned school teacher in the long running TV show Once Upon a Time? Kristen Stewart's troll charming heroine in 2012's Snow White and the Huntsman? Perhaps you've pictured whatever Lily Collins was doing in Mirror Mirror released the same year, or maybe Amy Poehler's animal summoning immigrant song wailing princess from the Shrek movies. But most likely, you've thought of the original, voiced by Adriana Casalotti in Disney's Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. But even this iconic cartoon version from 1937 is not actually the original Snow White. Snow White has entertained sold-out audiences since as far back as 1912, when she headlined her own Broadway show. And the character herself has been on record since 1812, when a story titled Schneeweichen appeared in the first edition of Grimm's Fairy Tales. Of course, even that seminal collection by the Brothers Grimm is just that, a collection of stories and characters collected from all over the European countryside, retold in a new setting. The point is, whichever Snow White you've called to mind, chances are you've pictured the perfect example of an adaptation. Adaptations occupy an interesting place in the public eye. In this podcast, we've covered at length just how rare so-called original ideas are in writing, whether in recurring plot devices such as tropes and cliches, or in broader publishing trends. But the inherent lack of originality in storytelling is rarely so obvious or maligned as when we talk about adaptation. Whether it's deriding bad fanfiction or complaining about the latest Hollywood reboot, we instinctively doubt the quality, originality, and even motives of adapting old ideas into new stories. 
But we also keep paying people to make more of them, whether by buying tickets to the latest Star Wars or Avengers or live-action Disney remake, or buying another copy of one of the best-selling books of the 21st century, Fifty Shades of Grey, a story that began as fanfiction. And I can only speak for myself here, but I'm still rereading my immortal to this day. In other words, we hate adaptations just about as much as we love them. We value things that are that are read, that are watched, that are listened to. We can say, oh, well, they're just bad. Well, if they're just bad, then you can just write them off. That's I.L. Cruz. Hi, I'm I.L. Cruz. I am a wife, a mother, a historian, and now a writer. She's the author of A Smuggler's Path, which debuted to glowing praise from Kirkus and self-publishing reviews in 2018. It's the first in four books for the Enchanted Path series. It's a striking adventure novel that, as one critic noted, stands alone in a very crowded fantasy genre. It's about a woman who is a smuggler of magical instruments and objects. And yet, some elements might still sound very familiar. I picked out... Funny enough, Mother Goose. I decided her friend would be Mary Contrary. Peter, Peter, Pumpkin Eater. I ended up with Jack B. Nimble. And not just because all the characters have the same name. People weren't particularly interesting in their name choices with Nursery Rhymes, so I knew I couldn't keep using five or six Marys. No, A Smuggler's Path isn't just an adaptation. It's a novel full of adaptations, of characters from many different sources and backgrounds coming together in a new world, reimagined by one author. There was one land that was called Mythos, which were mythological characters, and then another one called Fairy, which are obviously fairy tales. So it ended up ballooning into using literary characters that we already know, sort of, and making them part of a larger framework. Adaptation can be an enticing approach, especially for authors who are just starting out. There's a reason so many successful authors, from E.L. James to Neil Gaiman to S.E. Hinton, got their start writing fan fiction. If you don't know where to start, why not let someone else start for you and go from there? These stories are kind of like prompts. Even fairy tales, they sometimes feel like prompts because nothing's fleshed out. Some of the people don't even have names. They're just titles, evil queen. Well, I'm sure she had a name, <laughs> that kind of thing. And then you start thinking, what would her name have been? And I spin out into this wavelength of, okay, so what if this? And what if that? And, and eventually you hit upon one that says, okay, this one, this is new. This is a different thought that I haven't seen anywhere. And most readers are, most writers rather, are really big readers. So you've kind of seen all the stories and you know what's missing. And that starts the ball rolling in a retelling. But for all the benefits of adaptation, the drawbacks are obvious. Repurposing something familiar can come across as all too, well, familiar. It was about the time that it seemed like everybody was writing a retelling of fairy tales from various points of view, either feminist or from 
person of color or queer or what have you. If you were plugged into the pop culture conversation in the early 2010s, you probably remember a slew of modern takes on classic fairy tales, from the Snow White examples I referenced in the intro to Maleficent, Oz the Great and Powerful, and Hansel and Gretel, Witch Hunters. And sure, pulling two little siblings from German folklore, giving them crossbows and sawed-off shotguns, and sending them out to kill witches might sound pretty original, but no matter what angle you take, audiences eventually get sick of being told the same story again and again. So how did Cruz stand out in a crowded world of adaptations? More importantly, why did she choose to enter it in the first place? I think every writer is a frustrated reader. You're reading books and either you're not seeing a story that you want to read or you're not seeing yourself in a story or sometimes both. Books that you don't want to read. That could certainly refer to the umpteenth adaptation of a fairy tale. But for Isle Cruz, it meant something else entirely. For me, it was both. Something for which, ironically, adaptation was the only solution. As a woman of color, as a Latina, I never saw myself in these stories. As a matter of fact, I remember vividly when I was a kid, my friends and I would play fairy tales, quote unquote, and I was never allowed to play Snow White for obvious reasons, because I was not Snow White. Um, as a kid, I had to kind of juggle what I knew from popular culture, you know, Cinderella, Snow White, those kinds of things. and mythology, which I think I read Greek myths from cover to cover. I don't know how many times I had that huge book that everyone seems to have that had pictures in it and it was hardcover and I loved it. And then my grandmother and my mother would tell me about the the African saints and the, the Afro-Caribbean saints. And I would just make the correlation myself because when I heard about Ochun, I was like, oh my God, that's that's Venus, that's, that's Aphrodite. Or when I heard about um, Zeus, I would think about Orula. So it, it just, I think we all immediately, whenever we hear something that's slightly different than what we know, we immediately gravitate towards those elements that sound the same. It shouldn't surprise anyone that growing up in a culture other than your own, can pose unique challenges. But how do they relate to writing? Specifically to writing about something that's already been written about. Well, like Cruz said, when you want to tell people about something different than what they know, it helps to first give them a little more of the same. Now that I have a daughter of my own, I start to think about, well, I would like her to see herself in these stories. I would like her to see a person of color. I would like her to see a woman who doesn't necessarily need to have a romance to make the story work. I'd like her to see Latinas. And I think that's what brought about retellings. I think that's what brings about retellings for most people. They want to see themselves in a story. And the easiest way to make yourself seen is to use a framework that people are already comfortable with and people already know. So if you're reading Cinderella and Cinderella happens to be Native American, you already know this story, but now you think about it in a different way. It's like, oh, wow, why didn't I think about Cinderella being a Native American? 
Or why didn't I think about Rumpelstiltskin actually being queer? So I think that's what really brings about the need to retell a story. That's the thing about adaptation. It might not be the most original way to tell a story, but when you're trying to get people to relate to an experience foreign from their own, originality might not actually work in your favor. That explains why we see familiar nursery rhymes used to tell stories about Latinx characters, or zombies shoehorned into Pride and Prejudice because, damn it, how else are you going to sell Jane Austen to teenage boys? Adaptations are a great way to introduce old ideas to new readers, and to sneak them some new ideas at the same time. Of course, that's a tricky balance to strike, and for every Percy Jackson book, there's bound to be a few, well, Percy Jackson movies. Originally, the story was called Mother Goose Mysteries, and I quickly discovered that that was a ridiculous title. But done right, adaptation is a perfectly valid form of storytelling that any author should consider, fanfiction aficionado or not. I still love the concept of using nursery rhyme characters to create an entire world. But how do you do adaptation right? As someone who believes Baz Luhrmann's Great Gatsby movie rivals the book, I might not be the right guy to ask. But I.L. Cruz knows a thing or two about making something familiar seem new. And to hear her tell it, it starts with realizing that the things familiar to you might not be to someone else. What was important to me was to bring in aspects both that people would recognize like the the framework for the stories, but also elements that they might not know about. I think we're all very comfortable with magic in a Celtic sense. We think about uh, neo-paganism, we think about like Merlin or something like that, and we're very comfortable with that idea, but very often we don't know that there are those traditions in other cultures. For Latinos, although there were Celtic Latinos um, in Spain, there were also elements of spiritism and um, Santeria, which some people mistakenly think is Satanism, but it's not. It's actually the the reverence of saints, which have roots in African mythology as well. So I thought it was very important to bring in those elements elements of gods and goddesses that don't necessarily like the ones that we're expecting. Everyone knows, say, Zeus or Poseidon, but no one knows about Yemaya, who is the goddess of the sea, or Ochun, who is the goddess of moving water, rivers, things like that. And she's also love, so she could be synchronized with, say, Aphrodite. So I wanted to bring in those elements as well so people would see something that they recognize but realize that it's not just theirs. It's everyone. It's kind of a universal vision. There's another element that people generally associate with good adaptations. Faithfulness. Conventional wisdom would be that the closer an adaptation follows the source material, the better it is. Look at The Princess Bride, a universally acclaimed film that was adapted for the screen by none other than William Goldman, the author of the original book. For Cruz, however, faithfulness wasn't exactly an option. I thought that it was an interesting idea to see past just the first few lines of, of a rhyme 
to see an actual character. A faithful adaptation of, say, Humpty Dumpty would probably be pretty boring and quite short. But in fact, a lot of critics these days, presumably having sat through one too many soulless shot-for-shot remakes, are questioning the value of faithfulness in adaptation. Stanley Kubrick's version of The Shining, for example, bears little resemblance to Stephen King's source novel. Kubrick took the setting, plot, and characters, and then reworked them into a story and vision that were unmistakably his own. And while King wasn't the biggest fan of the adaptation, most audience members were. So no, the key to a good adaptation isn't in telling the original story, it's in figuring out how best to use the original story to tell your own. First, I picked out, funny enough, Mother Goose, because most people don't know Mother Goose has her own rhyme, and she's supposed to be the one who wrote all of these stories. I figured if Mother Goose is a writer, then she's definitely a person who observes things. So who else would be an observational kind of person? Well, it would be a person who's kind of on the fringes. She's a smuggler, which obviously makes her a fringe kind of person. So that's how I got her. But to me, the success of Cruz's adaptation didn't seem to come from any one writing hack. Instead, it seemed to stem from her understanding of characters, both her own and her readers. I think, especially with things like fairy tales and mythology, we prefer to understand motivations. The reason we see them as so basic is because they were based in a time when people were people of faith. So there was always this absolutely good character and this absolutely evil character. So nobody was nuanced. As we've evolved in our storytelling, I think, and another reason that we have retellings as much as we do, because we want to understand people's motivation and we want to relate. It's no longer enough to say that, say, Maleficent was evil. Now we have the movie Maleficent that says, well, why? Why was she so angry? She wasn't evil. She was upset. We've evolved from being very simplistic in our storytelling because there were moral stories, stories that helped us understand what was right and what was wrong, to stories that explain us and make us understand ourselves and the world better. So no longer can a hero just be this white knight who does everything correctly and is perfect. Now we need to see flaws. Now we need to understand why they do the things they do, because we want to relate to them. We want to be in the story, and it's very hard to be in a story when you have a paragon and the devil. <laughs> because no one knows those people. We don't know any paragons. We're not saints. And we don't, I don't think we're okay with our heroes being saints any more than we're okay with our villains being the devil. What do you think has kind of pushed us in that direction? Uh, to put on my historian cap, I think psychology has made that um, a necessity. Thinking of things as an absolute bad, as people who now want to understand how other people think, it's too easy to other people in that way. I think we all want to be the hero of our own story, but told by somebody else, we might end up as a secondary character, we might end up as the villain, who knows? And I think that's what it is. We want to see ourselves. 
Do you think then that mirrors why we're also starting to see more representation in storytelling today? Because for so long, it was these groups of people who had been othered. And, you know, the person who was telling the story was largely like this straight European white guy. And now all of a sudden it is evolved to kind of get the other perspectives in there as well. Absolutely. I think we underestimate how much we want to be seen. We all want to know that we matter. And part of mattering is being part of pop culture. Good, bad, or indifferent. That's what we want. We want to be seen and heard and thought to be of value. And the best way to do that is through storytelling. And if you see a story that includes something or someone that reminds you of you, no matter what you look like or sound like or love, you feel as though you've been empowered by it as though you matter. If you read stories, if you just read, and there are no covers on the books, then I'm sure at some point you can just put yourself into any story. But at some point, that writer is going to describe what the person looks like, what they sound like, the way they think. And then suddenly you've been pushed out a little. Now you're, you're watching a story as opposed to being a part of a story. And we all wanna be a part of a story. I.L. Cruz gets being pushed out of stories. She's been there. I mean, I'd be lying if I didn't say I don't write characters and see myself in them as well. So there is that. There's definitely that that need to go back to your six-year-old self and say, hey, you can play Snow White because I just wrote you into it. And she looks just like you. But she also gets that every story on some level is relatable. We started this episode with a catch-22. Fans, and the international consumer base at large, seem to hate adaptations just a little bit less than they love them. And while there may not be a satisfying answer why, there is an answer. We are complex. There's no such thing as saints and devils, white knights and evil witches, poetic justice, and fairy tale endings. There are only people people with wildly different backgrounds and motivations and stories, people who want to be unique, but also want to see their story in everyone else's. And to that little paradox, we can all relate. It's really easy to find, to find other perspectives, other ways of thinking, other, other views. Even if you just pick up a newspaper or if you read a book by someone who doesn't look or sound like you. I think it's it's not about trying to find other perspectives. It's about opening your mind to assuming there are other perspectives. Brought to you by Readsy, this is Best Seller. Over the course of these addendums, we'll check in with a handful of indie authors to get their unique takes on the journey to self-publication. This episode was written, hosted, and produced by me, Casimir M. Stone. If you liked it, please take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Our guest today was I.L. Cruz. You can purchase her book, A Smuggler's Path, on Amazon or on her website at booksbyilcruz.com. And for updates on the forthcoming sequel and the rest of the Enchanted Isles series, you can follow her on Instagram at il.cruz. This podcast, like so many self-published books out there, is made possible by Readsy, a marketplace that connects indie authors with the 
tools that traditional publishing houses would usually provide, such as editors, book cover designers, and publicists. You can learn more about Readsy on Instagram at Readsy underscore HQ, on Twitter at Readsy HQ, or online at R-E-E-D-S-Y dot com. And please stay tuned for more addendum episodes, as well as the premiere of our fourth season. Coming soon to iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or the podcatcher of your choice.